0: Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. When last we met, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry had, quote, met the enemy, and he was ours, clearing the way for Harrison's strike back at the British after a number of humiliating blunders and setbacks by the American forces the year prior. However, before he could do that, there was some housekeeping to which he had to attend. Upon his return to his headquarters in Franklinton, Ohio, in early June, Harrison first had to deal with problems with the militia. As noted by Freeman Cleves. quote, Western freemen were not deemed amenable to regular army discipline, and recurrent drunkenness, idling, thievery, and desertion would have to be curbed. His approach to discipline in the War of 1812 reflects that Harrison had come a long way from the overzealous young officer who had applied a harsh military punishment inadvertently to a civilian back in 1792, or episode 13 of the podcast, if you'd like to go back and learn more. He had advocated successfully for the banning of the practice of flogging in the army, and one of Harrison's volunteers later remarked that his, quote, disposition was such a mixture of sympathy, kindness, and humanity that he was like my Uncle Toby. He would not even hurt a fly. However, this did not mean that he would not hand out harsh punishments when need be. He approved the death sentence and did not grant a pardon for a soldier who had threatened the life of an officer who was arresting him for a separate offense but overall, Harrison tended to pardon or show leniency than harshness. Likewise, his relations with Native Americans allied with the United States was more congenial than his previous encounters as governor. Due to a recent Indian raid on a settlement near Sandusky Bay, the general public in the Northwest region was calling for harsh measures to be taken for vengeance and to secure the safety of the white settlers in the region. However, Harrison opted to call a council in which Tarhe, a Wyandotte chief, speaking for all the assembled tribes represented, pledged their support for the United States and led a token detachment of warriors to aid in the American war efforts. This sufficiently cooled the tensions so that Harrison could get back to work preparing for Perry's offensive on Lake Erie. British General Proctor, following the Battle of Lake Erie, evacuated his troops from the Michigan Territory and reestablished his command at Sandwich across the river from Detroit. He would not stay there long before proceeding up the Thames River to Moravian Town on September 27th. By this point, Harrison was hot on his heels. His troops landed on Canadian soil that afternoon. Sandwich was fully evacuated, with the British setting fire to around 200 buildings in the town on the 28th, and it was occupied by Harrison's forces soon after. Detroit was secured, new troops and supplies arrived, and now it was time for Harrison to plan a pursuit. On October 1st, he held a council of war in which various options were discussed before Harrison decided to march up the Thames River and try to catch up to Proctor and his forces, or at least his baggage train, despite the British having a three-day head start. It didn't take long before the American advance guard was engaging the rear guard of Proctor's forces. As noted by military historian John Elting, quote, Fortunately for the Americans, Proctor was even more incompetent at retreating than attacking. Proctor was reluctant to turn and fight, despite the protestations of some of his officers, as well as Tecumseh. However, finally, with the Mounted Regiment scouting out their position, Proctor gave the order to turn and fight less than two miles outside of Moravian Town. It should be noted that Moravian Town at that point, quote, still was jammed with their, meaning the British, supply wagons, artillery, sick, and white and Indian women and children. To retreat further would be to abandon all of them. Ready or not the fight was on. A mounted force led by James Johnson launched against the British with the cry of, Remember the River Raisin, and exploited a weakness in Proctor's line to inflict a few casualties before stalling, in dense underbrush along the swamp, which horses could not penetrate. They dismounted and continued fighting with the battle lasting at most a half hour. The battle itself was a confused affair, but at some point, Tecumseh was killed. The matter of who dealt the killing blow would become a matter of dispute, penetrating into the political realm as a number of the veterans from the campaign entered into public service. The battle itself was a firm American victory, with 477 British soldiers taken prisoner, while Proctor, his staff, and 200 or so British, as well as around 400 of their Native American allies, escaping. Despite escaping with his life, Proctor would never recover his reputation after the Battle of the Thames. He, quote, was court-martialed and suspended from rank and pay for six months afterwards. Harrison would never be the same either after this battle, with many trials ahead, but his fortunes would ultimately be much brighter than his British counterparts. The changes that this battle brought to both the participants, the people of the Old Northwest, and the nation, were not at first clear as the dust settled. Even Tecumseh's death wasn't immediately accepted by either side. Harrison was asked to examine the body to make an identification, but due to swelling in the body, quote, he was unable to determine whether the body was Tecumseh's or that of a patawatomi chief who always accompanied him on his travels. Thus, the American forces posted extra guards around their encampment for a time after the battle in case Tecumseh had survived and mounted a counterattack. That attack never came, and Tecumseh never returned. Within a week, a group of Native Americans who had served under Tecumseh came to the American camp asking for peace. Thus would end the last military operation against Indians east of Lake Michigan and the Wabash River. British influence on the Native Americans in the area would wane with the dissolution of Tecumseh's confederacy. The tribes would continue to move west, and quote, the way was cleared for future settlement in what had been Indian lands. Meanwhile, Harrison had to decide on his next course of action. When he conferred with Generals Lewis Cass and Duncan MacArthur and Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry at an encampment south of Detroit, two options presented themselves, either to direct forces northward to retake Fort Mackinac in the strait between Lakes Huron and Michigan, or to proceed east with his forces and join military operations in progress in the Niagara Theater of Operations. Harrison opted for the latter and landed at Erie, Pennsylvania on October 22, before proceeding on to Buffalo and with Harrison taking his forces to Fort George on the Canadian side of the Niagara River. Despite Secretary of War Armstrong's initial agreement with Harrison's planned operations and the commander on the ground, General George McClure, welcoming Harrison's arrival as providing him with the means and the manpower to successfully carry out an attack on Burlington Heights, where General Proctor and his forces had fled after the Battle of the Thames, Harrison received orders on November ninth to instead proceed to Sackett's Harbor on the other side of Lake Ontario. Though Harrison and McClure realized that the departure of himself and his forces would not only end any possibility of carrying out an attack on the British, but potentially leave Fort George undermanned, Harrison followed orders and arrived at Sackett's Harbor in late November 1813. As the season at this point was too late for large-scale military operations, he left his troops there and traveled by stagecoach to Albany, New York, where he met with Secretary Armstrong and New York Governor Daniel D. Tompkins and traveled with them on Steamboat to West Point and New York City. Harrison then made his way down the East Coast, being feted at various public dinners as, quote, the hero of the Thames and, quote, the deliverer of our Western frontier before arriving in Washington, D.C., where he attended a drawing room at the White House. It was around this time that an onlooker, David Buell, wrote, The people at Washington have got scared at Harrison's victories. They are afraid a few more might make him president. So far as the folks at Washington are concerned, this struggle from the start has been about three parts politics to one part war. Indeed, Buell's prediction that Harrison would not be given another field command and would rather be, quote, put out of the way, would prove to be quite accurate. While Harrison's career was approaching rougher waters, two events affecting his personal life were occurring in Cincinnati. First, his wife Anna had given birth to another child, a daughter named Anna Tuthill, who would be the couple's second-to-last child, and the final one who would survive to adulthood. Harrison's sister Lucy had written to Anna during one of her many pregnancies that, quote, I'm really sorry to hear you are going to have another child for I know your delicate constitution must be injured by having so many children. One can only wonder at the physical, mental, and emotional strain being faced by Anna Harrison at this point, with now nine children in her care, and her husband off at war for the majority of two years. Her nerves were likely taxed further by the death of her father on February 26, 1814, with the funeral taking place at the home that Anna was renting in Cincinnati. John Cleve Sims' last few years had been neither peaceful nor prosperous. Despite his efforts to develop North Bend, Ohio as a prosperous town, business and investment had instead centered on Cincinnati. Sims was the victim of arson, as his mansion in North Bend was set on fire by a personal enemy, thus destroying all of his financial records and preventing him from being able to collect debts owed to him. Thus, he ended his life in financial and legal quandaries, which his son-in-law would later have to expend a good amount of time and effort in untangling. Before he could deal with personal matters, Harrison had to return to his headquarters in Cincinnati to deal with supply issues in a command stretching from St. Louis to Detroit. His latest orders from Secretary of War Armstrong were to issue orders to General Benjamin Howard and his forces in St. Louis and to, quote, lose no time in pressing forward to Detroit. If Harrison thought that meant an opportunity to prove himself once more in the field, in order to receive a higher appointment in the Army, he was sorely mistaken. Armstrong, contradicting his own orders to Harrison, though fulfilling his prior understanding with Howard, that his orders would be received directly from the War Department, rather than through Harrison, sent orders to Howard to halt his march to join Harrison's forces in Cincinnati and Detroit. Naturally, Harrison was upset at the interference, and wrote Armstrong that, quote, Apart from considerations of duty to my country, I have no earthly inducement to remain in the Army, and if the prerogatives of my rank and situation be taken from me, I should much rather retire to private life. Armstrong's further actions seemed to prove that to be his wish. Armstrong did not stop with Howard in delivering direct orders to other field commanders, supposedly under Harrison's command, with the orders sometimes contradicting the orders being sent by Harrison field operatives in the northwest were being put between a rock and a hard place meanwhile in washington rumors possibly started by armstrong or his supporters began circulating that general harrison is at present so unpopular in the western country that the people will not again enter the public service under his command further A Washington-based Army contractor named Benjamin G. Orr made formal charges against Harrison before Congress that, despite his contract with the War Department's supply forces in the Northwest, Harrison had instead made special purchases from a Cincinnati merchant named John H. Payot that were more costly to the federal government than they would have been under the contract with Orr, thus insinuating that Harrison had been in collusion with Payot to defraud the government. Armstrong presented evidence against Harrison in the inquiry, and before a reply could be received from Harrison, the House committee issued an unfavorable report, leading Armstrong to send a formal order to Harrison, quote, to submit a full accounting of all purchases by commissaries. Further employment of special commissaries, i.e. payout, was forbidden. Despite the efforts of Harrison's supporters in the West sending memorials to Washington, arguing, quote, that General Harrison was never more popular among the Western people than he is at this time and Harrison having legitimate arguments to counter the allegations of financial mismanagement, he could read the writing on the wall. Armstrong would continue to work against him and to throw doubt into his honorability, which could then throw his future career into jeopardy. Thus, Harrison decided to cut his losses and wrote to Armstrong on May eleventh, 1814, quote, Sir, I have the honor through you to request the President to accept my resignation of the appointment of Major General in the Army having some reasons to believe that the most malicious insinuations had been made against me at Washington. It was my intention to have requested an inquiry into my conduct from the commencement of my command. Further reflection has, however, determined me to decline the application, because from the proud consciousness I have palpably done my duty. I cannot believe that it is necessary, either for the satisfaction of the government or the people, that I should pay so much respect to the suggestions of malice and envy. It is necessary, however, that I should assure you, sir, that I subscribe implicitly to the opinion that Army officers are responsible for their conduct and amenable to the decision of a court-martial after they have left the service for any improper act committed in it. In that last line from this excerpt of Harrison's letter, he was throwing down the gauntlet to Armstrong. If he wanted to tangle, Harrison would bring his A-game. At the same time, Harrison sent a letter to Madison, asserting that he was resigning as he felt it was, quote, compatible with his expression of patriotism, as with a proper regard of my own feelings and honor. This was not the only letter that Madison would receive. Kentucky Governor Isaac Shelby would write independently to the president on May 15th, expressing that, quote, Having served a campaign with General Harrison, by which I have been enabled to form some opinion of his military talents and capacity to command, I feel no hesitation to declare to you that I believe him to be one of the first military characters I ever knew. I doubt not that the command of the Northwestern Army has been one of the most arduous and difficult tasks ever assigned to any officer in the United States, yet he surmounted all. If any arrangement should take place which may produce the resignation of General Harrison, it will be a misfortune which our country will have cause to lament. These letters convinced Madison that Harrison should be retained in command, but the President was thwarted by his own underling. Armstrong, acting on Madison's behalf, as Madison was at his home Montpelier in Virginia at the time, had already accepted Harrison's resignation before Madison could act. With that, Harrison's second career in the Army was over. Harrison would ultimately be vindicated with time. Oddly enough, as the House investigation into Harrison's supposed malfeasance in conducting special contracts with Payot was proceeding, the War Department was contracting Payot, quote, to supply rations to troops within Ohio, Kentucky, and Michigan Territory. An expert on U.S. administrative history, Leonard White, would conclude that, quote, the record of John H. Payot proves that honorable and capable men were also among those who supplied the army. Though the contract with payout meant that, quote, the price of provisions more than doubled, it seems that the long-standing problem of army provisions being unreliable either in terms of delivery or quality was resolved. The government within a year's time was unable to pay for for payout services, but he gave orders to his agent as follows, quote, I duty as a citizen, and the confidence reposed in me since the declaration of war compels me to continue the supply of the army. It is incompatible with the duty of a public agent in any capacity to take advantage of the embarrassments of his government. You will therefore continue the supply of the army and meet every wish of the general commanding with the utmost promptitude in your power, disregarding any necessary expense. Payot would die in a state of financial disorder, but a Congressional Select Committee would commend him in 1824 as, quote, not only a man of activity and zeal but of the most lofty patriotism john armstrong meanwhile would end his career in disgrace a few months after harrison's resignation after the attack and burning of washington d c by the british in september eighteen fourteen madison would confront armstrong with the fact that his incompetence in not making proper preparations for the defense of the capital. His continued political machinations confusing the Army's command and capabilities and his refusal to carry forward with the decision of the Cabinet to bring arms from Harper's Ferry to the capital for its defense had resulted in the humiliation of the nation. As Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum wrote, quote, the President virtually ordered Armstrong out of town, though Armstrong, quote, would for years cast blame on others for his resignation as Secretary of War. It was clear to many in the government and the military at the time that his departure was long past due. The war was not over yet, either for Harrison or for the nation. Though finally beginning to make headway and mount a challenge on some fronts, the United States was still struggling in its conflict with Great Britain, and one of its arguably most able commanders was now heading home. Likewise, Though Harrison had resigned in order to quiet allegations against him, he would be dealing with numerous challenges to his war record for the remainder of his life. What did the future have in store for Harrison and his nation? To find out, you'll have to tune in to our episode in two weeks, which I call Mr. Harrison Goes to Washington. For next week, we'll have a special treat. While General Harrison is figuring out his next steps... The Harrison Podcast is partnering with the History of the Ottoman Empire podcast, where we'll travel to Istanbul around the time of Harrison's presidency and get some insight into early U.S. diplomacy in the Middle East. In the meantime, please feel free to direct your questions, comments, or ideas by email at HarrisonPodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash HarrisonPodcast, again, all one word. You can also leave comments on and listen to past episodes at the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. This podcast is also available on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening. For our American listeners, I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving, and like Harrison at this point in his life, I hope you are able to take a break from your everyday concerns and surround yourself with family, friends, and loved ones to celebrate where you're at and to dream anew of the future to come. Take care, dear listeners. Until next time.